If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leith and welcome to my podcast. Each week I focus on topics related to mental health and discuss ways to help you deal with issues like anxiety, depression, shame, guilt, PTSD, and more. I've spent the last 30 years researching the mind-brain connection and mental health. I worked with patients who suffered from traumatic brain injuries, struggled with anxiety, battled with learning issues, and often worked with families to resolve major relationship and communication problems. In this podcast, you will hear the advice I gave to my patients and the techniques I developed and used to help them find healing. My goal is to give you simple, effective and practical tips and tools to help you take back control over your mental, emotional and physical health. Before I begin today's discussion, I want to take a moment to thank everyone who has supported this podcast either by leaving a review, spreading the word, sharing episodes with friends and family, and posting about this podcast on social media. I love reading your reviews and learning how I can make this podcast even more helpful. Welcome everyone to Cleaning Up the Mental Mess. I am very excited about today's podcast because it's one I've been wanting to do for a while now. And I believe it will not only be very eye-opening for many of you, but also extremely helpful. In today's episode, we are going to discuss the major issues in the current mental health legal system, where patients are left worse than when they came in, and discussing solutions for those who not only work in the legal profession, but also anyone who has been affected in any way. Even if you do not fall into either of these categories, this episode is packed with so much interesting and helpful information and tips that you will definitely benefit from it. So let's start. Welcome Judge Brown and Laurie. Good morning. Good morning to you both. And thank you so much for joining me today. I am so excited about this podcast because what we are about to discuss is so important and I be, believe will be invaluable for people listening. So before we begin, can you both introduce yourself and just give a bit of your background and how you got interested in the mental health side of the legal profession, starting with you, Judge Brown. Good morning. Um, I've been involved with the um, mental health system for quite some time. I started out as a public defender, and so I noticed that often many of my clients would have symptoms or things that maybe I couldn't really understand. And so I, I started to realize that there were issues that were happening. And so I did that for 15 years, interacting uh, personally with uh, different clients with different concerns and issues. And for the last eight years, I've been a judge. And so I've been uh, dealing with um, the mental health care system from the um, judicial point of view, from the criminal point of view. And so there are just so many things that we can talk about today and share about what we can do to uh, help 
help the system. Oh, that's incredible. Well, I'm absolutely thrilled to have you on board. Um, for Judge Brown's bio, we will attach that in the show notes and then people can find out more about you as well. Um, and Laurie, do you mind giving your background? Laurie's not new to us. Laurie's been on our podcast before. So welcome back, Laurie. It's wonderful to have you back on the podcast. Yes, and I'm so excited to be on with Judge Brown. We met at the at your conference last year, Judge Brown mm-hmm. and I. But what's so great about this is while she was a um an a, a defense attorney, I was a prosecuting attorney. Um and I was on the civil side, not the criminal side. And so whenever people were found incompetent to stand trial or they weren't able to go through with the criminal proceeding for some reason they get transferred from the criminal system over to the civil system for involuntary commitment into a mental health facility. And that's where I came in contact with them. And now I'm on the other side of the fence representing um, people who are being involuntarily detained. So I just Mm. think between Judge Brown and I, we have such a great wealth of information to help your listeners. And I'm so excited (laughs) for what we're going to be able to do moving forward. So am I. It's just incredible. Well, I, there's so much to talk about. So what I'm going to do is just guide you with some questions and I'm really going to give you to the floor to share as much as you can with our listeners. Um, so the questions will be simple guidelines, but any direction that anything that you feel that can help our listeners understand this, this very complex process and system will be fantastic. So if you're ready, I'm going to dive into some questions. And I thought let's start with a brief explanation of the three different ways that the legal system touches mental health. So involuntary hospitalization, misdemeanor mental health care courts, and felony competency restoration. So should we start with involuntary hospitalization? Actually, I think um, I think the first place that people will usually... Um, experience family members touching the court system is either through mental health courts when they've committed a misdemeanor or a smaller crime or in the felony criminal courts um, where they are found possibly not competent to stand trial. Those are the first two areas usually where people encounter the legal system. And Judge Brown, you see those you see those probably more often than me. I see them after they've been through that that process. Do you want to speak briefly to you know, how you encountered them as a defense attorney and what you see now in the judicial system? Sure. I I would love to talk about that. So with regard to misdemeanor court, so basically a felony, let me just, the basics between a misdemeanor and a felony, a a misdemeanor is something that we consider a minor crime. And usually that's where you're going to find folks who have some concerns because sometimes it's not always a crime, but maybe It's just acting up or not following a police officer's direction or vandalizing something, something very minor. And they come into the court system and oftentimes they are treated as criminals and they are not recognized or acknowledged as having uh, mental health concerns or things that could be treated versus punished. So it's so important that if you have a loved one who comes into contact with the system, that you let the lawyer know that there could be some issues. So gather information from the schools or if there's been some medical treatment or medications that have been prescribed, that information is so helpful 
to the lawyer because as a lawyer, you want to make sure that your client is getting the best care. So if they should be treated rather than punished, you need that. The lawyer wants to know that information. And oftentimes in my county, we have specialty courts. So we have courts where there's uh, mental health diversion. So if there's a, if you qualify with not necessarily a diagnosis, but there are symptoms and their treatment, we can have that person diverted and they won't have to suffer punishment, but can get treatment. So it's so important. So many people are getting lost in the system because they're, they're, they may not, we people, we may not know that there might be some issues that we can address as treatment versus punishment. So that's the most important thing. Yeah, that's very important. And so, and I would also say that if law enforcement is involved, if you have to call law enforcement for some reason, please make sure that law enforcement knows that there are concerns and issues that uh, with your loved one. So you don't want law enforcement to come out and say that your loved one is not responsive or not following orders, especially if there's an issue where they can't follow orders or they are slow to follow orders or things of that nature, because sometimes symptoms are misinterpreted as, um, you know, being being non-responsive or, or being rebellious. And so you want to make sure that law enforcement knows that it's so important that if you if law enforcement must get involved, that they need training and that they, they need to be aware that there are certain issues to take into account. So that's really, really important. I love that. So people must give as much information as possible Absolutely. about the person, about the context, about their story, about what's going on in their life, if I'm hearing you say correctly. Yes. Don't be scared. Don't be scared to share more. The more, the better. More is better. And don't let the stigma of that, you know, of the labeling, that's the thing. We don't want the stigma of the labeling to keep people from receiving the help that they are entitled to under the law. It's important. Very good. That's an excellent point. And Dr. Leaf, if I could add to that, very common thing that we see is psychosis. If someone's Mm -hmm. experiencing psychosis, it presents to law enforcement as someone who is on drugs. Absolutely. if If they don't know. And so they they just this it's just another reason to need to be told because yes there's times when um someone maybe uh, is paranoid and so that's going to come off as belligerence to the police but the psychosis that appears as if someone's under the influence of drugs or alcohol i think that's a really important one to be able to distinguish because you know in psychosis there's a extreme amount of confusion happening as much information as law enforcement can can uh have to be equipped to handle that situation, the better. That's so that's a great point. Yes. And I would also say when interacting with your lawyer, sometimes certain things, as you know, present as, um, like you said, being belligerent or or non-responsive or not wanting to assist in your own defense. And it could be that someone is on the spectrum of, of, of one of these uh, disordered thought processes, you know, Asperger's or something, what's happening. And they may say, okay, this client of mine is not, they don't want to help. They're they're not. And so the lawyer may not know assisting me and it may be something else. And so lawyers need to be um, educated as well. And we're doing better with that. But there needs. But the more information the loved one can volunteer will help the representation. So I think that's also very important. I'm so pleased that you both raised that point, because I know that as soon as people see someone who is considered the authority, 
they just assume that um, they have all the knowledge. So the law enforcement or the lawyer, they just assume they have all the knowledge and they don't offer enough. The same thing happens in the medical profession. So what you're saying is for people to give as much detail as possible. Absolutely. That really helps in the, in the, in the management of the whole situation. It does. Is there anything else that you would like to say about um, the misdemeanor versus felony competency, competency restoration courts? Well, with regard to the felonies, um, there are certain felonies that um, that still may not be diverted. But it, but sometimes as a judge, I have the discretion of saying, OK, instead of jail, I'm going to give you a treatment facility or a treatment program. So there are uh, available uh, certain like probation or parole um, specialty areas where we can do that. But if we don't know that, if I don't know that, then I'm going to go down the traditional path, right, of punishment, right, and supervision. But if I can put you in a place where there is treatment and then after that, where your supervision is handled by a professional or someone who has special knowledge in these areas, that's better for you. Because I I want you to get treatment because I don't want to see you again. I don't want you to come back, right? So it's, yeah, so it's important to 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 let us know that so that we can get you in a place um, that's that's helpful for you and helpful for society as a whole. Fantastic. Uh, that's, so, that's so important. What you're saying is give information. That's really what's vital. That's, yes. Can we talk a little bit about the involuntary hospitalization? Certainly. Well, when client, clients most often that I see have come through the criminal system, um, there is an opportunity in felony cases where they don't qualify for the type of diversion Judge Brown is talking about. And every state does this a little bit differently. But if someone, if a lawyer identifies a client who's experiencing symptoms, um, acute symptoms, they can say, you know, I think my client, uh, this is a defense so that my client to claim that my client has not knowingly committed this crime. And then the judge or the prosecutor can say, well, we're going to allow this person to receive a certain amount of treatment, a certain number of days of treatment. And if they're able to restore their competency, they can still stand trial. So in the state of Washington, they get two or three attempts at the judge's discretion of 90-day restoration periods. If that fails, if they get a finding from the state mental institution saying they have not restored competency and they are not likely to ever do so, then they get moved from the criminal system to the involuntary treatment system. So that's one way people get into the involuntary treatment system. The other way is someone who's in the community who's experiencing these acute symptoms and either a family member or a shop owner or someone in the community who comes in contact with them calls the crisis line or the county mental health line instead of law enforcement, um, then they can get directed straight to the involuntary system. Um, and then a third way they can get in is if they are someone who is known to law enforcement, who has been already in the system, law enforcement may recognize them and take them directly to an emergency room versus the jail. So those are the three different ways I typically see clients come into the involuntary hospitalization process. Judge Brown, do you have anything you'd like to add? Um, the only thing I would add with regard to the restoring of competency is oftentimes, and I'm not sure what happens on the mental health end of it, but when they get to court, oftentimes from my 
perspective, I don't feel that the person understands the weight and the significance of what they're going through, but they have been technically restored to competence. And so I have to move forward with that. But sometimes I'm just wondering, have we really done all that we can to make sure that the person understands the, the, the weight of what they're about to go through with a trial or a plea? And so those, there are some holes in the system that I would like to see, you know, see my my profession really really address so the, and that's on the fact with the, you say the family members as well as the person in question right it's for it's on both sides yeah right but one of the holes i see dr leaf is that sometimes you know folks don't have family mm. you know people are you know sometimes they are they are uh, homeless without residence or they are children in the um foster case mm. And who have been, yeah, foster children and they don't may not have the records. And so that's another issue that we're dealing with is is trying to, to work all these things out when we have people that don't have, you know, the history. Anyone to speak up for them. Yeah. It's huge. It's a huge hole in the system because they need advocates. Is there any kind of solution for that? I, I believe that there there is. There are certain groups who advocate for, like, for example, foster children and for uh, those who are homeless. But we need really more of a grassroots effort to make sure that we're addressing the mental health concerns. You know, we're addressing the, the greater concerns. But often the, the reason that many people end up with me in the criminal justice system is because of these issues have gone uh, unaddressed, undiagnosed, unacknowledged. That's a lot of it. But Larry, did you want to add to that? Uh, I just, I will absolutely want to echo Judge Brown's sentiment earlier, which she mentioned, is that we're turning these criminal defendants and these involuntary patients into, fr from a crisis standpoint, into, chron into people with chronic illness. Yes. So just like she said, we're seeing the revolving door. <laughs> they're just, they're in and out, in and out. And instead of helping them get healed, mm -hmm. we're just medicating them well enough to get them out of our system. That's exactly right. Yeah. And that's not enough. That's not enough. It's not. And I know, Laurie, in previous discussions, um, you, you had mentioned this that we've had. And you also made a comment that it's one of the most expensive, fastest growing sectors of government community services and to this, this whole revolving door concept. Yes, absolutely. And um, in the state of Washington, when they created the involuntary code, the law, there were some legislative comments added that said that the goal was to avoid the revolving door. They actually hmm. used that word uh, in the commentary. However, since that statute was created, we have continued to see state hospitals and local facilities close. In my county alone, I've seen yes. two clothes in the last calendar year. And so I know that the services available and being offered, they get so expensive and they're so heavily regulated that sometimes these facilities end up having to close down on the ones who suffer then are the people who need the services. And so finding a way toward early intervention, finding a way toward the labeling that's happening and how mm -hmm. to help people heal from those labels and also finding a way to create alternatives to long-term psychotropic medications. I am all about getting a grassroots movement to yes. educate people about those three things. Yes. Go ahead, Judge. I would also say that there, 
I don't know about other states, but California has what we call regional centers. We have our uh, San Andreas regional centers that if you are diagnosed with uh, with something after the age of 18, that they offer resources and treatment. And I'm sure that in other states there are places. So, But the problem is people have, you know, there's so much stigma around identifying as having a mental health disorder or concern or issue that people don't want to take advantage of the services that are available that kind of intervene before you get to the criminal justice system. So what I'm wondering what we can do to to relieve this the stigma of of this area. Yeah, because there's so much work around the stigma and, and we know that the message going out there is one of go and get your mental health label and your diagnosis and um, that's the, that will then stop the stigma but that actually increases the stigma the research has actually shown that it's had a backfiring effect and this is exactly what you from what I'm hearing you say the same thing that people are, don't even want to go and get that preventative care mm-hmm. Laurie, you mentioned in previous discussions that one solution is to get governments to focus more on early community intervention, you know, to get and, and, and things like, do you, want to, do you want to speak to that for a moment? Yes. When, when I was, um, about this time last year, I was researching sort of, you know, where is there a model where there is not involuntary hospitalization? Mm-hmm. Where, where in the world is this happening? And this is happening in... Uh, like, I believe both Greece and Italy have this kind of a system. Yes. Okay. And so when you look at the studies that have been done in these countries where they've eliminated that, what they have instead are these early intervention community centers where at the first onset, uh, people are able to go and they're saying they don't have to come with a diagnosis. There's no insurance company involved. What they have to come in with is a symptom. Um, and so this addresses your issue, which is I'm experiencing a symptom or a cluster of symptoms. Mm-hmm. I am not my label. And they come in and the community helps them. It's much like the listening bench that you discuss. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're lonely and they're confused. And the the entire community Judge Brown mentioned the the homeless community um, that are out there without assistance, without advocates, um, without um, in in many of your podcasts where where people are access to transportation and things that need more assistance are getting it at an earlier stage and avoiding the need for involuntary hospitalization altogether. And the numbers of people being diagnosed and being labeled with these mental health diseases we're seeing decreasing in those countries, which I find completely amazing. Mm. And they have similar, I agree with you, the Italy and um, Greece, and then also the Netherlands has also got some incredible early community intervention processes going. And they have an online, they actually have a whole system set up where they have millions of youth um, that are supporting each other online um, with eating disorders and just general mental health kind of challenges. And so those three countries from the reading I've done and the research I've done is that they've actually taken away the, that people get mentally ill, that narrative, and turned it into life is tough. It's the human condition. How can we all help each other? Right. So powerful. Yeah. And I'm wondering if that is not, well, I think we can all agree that's probably, it's a new narrative that is needed. Because at the moment we have lumped mental illness as into the same category as something like cancer or diabetes or whatever as being a an illness, as opposed to seeing it as every human battles. Yeah. And we need to be, we need, we need to be more community focused. So can you, I don't know if you can just pick up from, carry on from what I'm saying or explain a little bit more or can you speak to this? 
Well, actually, I would love to hear what Judge Brown has to say, because I think she sees a version of this in the mental health diversion opportunities. Would you agree? I absolutely agree. And I I think that it is the the narrative needs to change and it needs to be that exactly what you said, Dr. Leaf, every human has challenges with mental health at one point or another. But at what point do we stigmatize it or criminalize it? And often sometimes you see, especially if you're watching the news, it's like mental health is has become almost synonymous with criminal. Mm. And it's and it's just not true. Right. And so we've got to find a way to change this narrative to to it's all of our issues. Right. We all have this issue. It is an issue of human, the human condition. And we need to all participate Mm -hmm. in in the dialogue. That's why I really love the um, diversion courts. And they um, they take this new narrative. And this is where money comes in and advocacy from the from legislators and local legislators. We've got to put money into these diversion courts where there's treatment and education and not punishment. So we've we've got to rally our our legislators, our lawmakers, um, because they hold the purse strings, right, of of creating these these specialty courts and these specialty areas where we can train, educate our our citizens instead of criminalizing them because we're criminalizing a population of people. And I I just think that it's unnecessary and it's wrong. Absolutely. We actually criminalize criminalizing human emotion. Yeah. And wow. that's so the diver- can you speak a little bit more about um, the diversion courts? Yes. All right. So so at least in uh, California, at least in my state, um, in my county, we have several um, specialty courts and we have like veterans court. And one of the courts that we have is mental health diversion. And that is a code that is written that if you and they call it a diagnosis, they don't recognize it as system, system, uh, symptoms. But if you have a specific or a certain diagnosis and you have um, and you have a crime that is not violent, you can be put in a place where you do not receive not only do you not receive receive punishment, you receive treatment instead, but you also don't suffer that conviction so that when it comes time to get a job and move forward with your life, you're not burdened with the conviction. So once you complete the program, you are diverted and you can start afresh and anew. And they they make it such that where it's not penalty oriented. So you make a mistake, you're not necessarily punished with jail, but you're given opportunity, maybe more support, maybe more education, things of that nature. But we, you know, I would have to say that our courts are really understaffed in this area because we need more, yeah, more money. We need more space. We need more money. We need more people to train and to educate. And we need more education with law enforcement, with lawyers and with judges. We just need more education here. But it's a start. It's a start. That's wonderful. And are they all over? You said they're in California and they and all the states. Do all the states have the diversion courts? I, I don't know. I don't even know if all of the counties in, in uh, California do. I'm in Santa Clara County where we it's really important here. So I'm not I'm not sure about other places. But if you live in a place where they don't have uh, diversion courts, start rallying your your bench and your uh, your local leaders to get these things in place. Well, that sounds like a very good first because it's going towards the community as opposed towards the putting them into a system that stigmatizes them even more, you know, to avoid. So it's addressing it at a grassroots level. Absolutely. And remember, these folks are going to live with us in our community. Don't we want them treated? Exactly. 
we don't don't we want to give them education yes. and treatment and ways and tools to go forward? We don't want to just put them in jail where they learn to be better criminals. Exactly. So it's not enhancing the community. It's actually detracting from the community focus. Absolutely. Absolutely. It helps our community when we all pitch in and make sure that we all have good mental health. It's it's important. So that's totally important. Do you want to say something about that, Laurie, about the diversion courts? I, we do have them in my county. I am familiar with the two judges who created them for Clark County, and they have both now moved on to successful careers. One is a lawyer, a mediator, and the other on our state court of appeals. And what happened in our state is that caught on like wildfire and other counties started across the state started adopting it. This has been, uh, you know, 15, maybe 18 years ago. Same thing happened with our veterans court. So I think we must have something similar in our yeah. county that Judge Brown explained. Mm-hmm. But I do think, you know, the the case, it supports the, the, the leaders. So this is what I've learned from Judge Brown. Follow, you know, the purse strings mm-hmm. uh, and not always just from a money standpoint, but from a uh, workload standpoint, because mm-hmm. decreasing government's workload increases their budget. Right. So right. in the judicial system, they were completely just jammed with these cases. And so by creating this mental health diversion court, it relieved the system of those cases, created a, a workflow for them. And so while we're all saying, oh, this made wonderful sense from the standpoint of being a mental health advocate, the judiciary was thinking of it a little bit differently. So, yes. <laughs> so sometimes when we're advocating, we have to stop and put ourselves in the position of those who are able to be the decision makers and say, where can where does what we want to where does our objective cross paths with theirs mm-hmm. where can we alleviate pain that they're experiencing in their system to get the result that we want and i think that's where the grassroots advocacy comes in mm-hmm. we can start with educating people but what we ultimately need to do is to figure out where our paths cross with state legislatures, the judiciary, the insurance companies, Mm. state governments, national governments, what kind of federal money is being funneled to programs that are not working? Um, How can we establish something different? Those are the big vision items that I think, you know, the three of us have. And we're at the very beginning of seeing people's eyes being opened to um, other possibilities. I'm I'm very excited about where this could go and um, yeah, the connections we can make at this year's conference um, for those who are interested. Yeah, very exciting. This episode is brought to you by Juve, an at-home red light therapy device. Red light therapy is a powerful, non-invasive treatment which delivers natural wavelengths of light to your skin and cells. Numerous studies have shown red light therapy can be an effective modality that we can use to help heal and improve our mental, cognitive and physical health. It's one of the best things I recommend for optimal health and an integral part of my self-care routine. Head over to juve.com slash Dr. Leaf. That's J. O-O-V-V forward slash D-R-L-E-A-F. And if you use the code Dr. Leaf at checkout, you'll get a nice bonus gift with your purchase. 
Digestion is a big problem for so many people I meet today. And without strong digestion, you'll battle to reach the level of mental health and performance you deserve. A balanced gut microbiome, something the right probiotic can help you achieve, helps turn the food you eat into nutrients your brain can use. There's one from a company called Bioptimizers that I have found to be especially impressive. It's called P3-OM. You can get a free bottle of P3-OM shipped out today by going to www.p-3-o.m.com slash leaffree and use the coupon leaffreep3om. The link will be in the show notes. Well, I'm so excited to have you both on board with that. And, and I know it's a huge Goliath that we're taking on, but it's, as you've just described so, so perfectly, Laurie, just the, the, the vision that we have as a team to try and from the grassroots take the necessary baby steps to help educate and change mindsets around the problems that are built into the system. And, you know, we, we, we trying to, and in our mental health summit this year, you both going to be on a panel and we're going to be just trying to start the process of discussing this. And if anyone's listening to that podcast and you're in the legal profession in any way and you feel you can contribute, please send us an email. Um, you can go to drleaf.com and send through info and um, see if, you know, we, the more people we get involved to help us, the better. In terms of, I just want to come back to the, um, some, some practical tips. Can you, can you both provide some practical tips and techniques for families and professionals who touch the system and who are affected by the mental health legal system? I know you've touched on a few things at the beginning, Judge, but I think if we can both, if we can give some more practical tips, that will be fantastic. And if I may kickstart this, you both mentioned quite strongly that a new narrative is required and that it's very much around community and it's very much around education. And it's very much about standing up for your loved ones and getting them giving as much information as possible. So if I can hand over to you for some practical tips and techniques for families and professionals. All right. I can start with families. And that my first tip would be to gather documents, because when you come to court, uh, we want to see something in writing. We want to see that someone has documented something that you're what you're saying. So gather documents from school, from hospitals. And I would say that most schools have a resource center or a resource person or uh, someone who works with mental health with with those folks. Gather those documents and make sure that Maybe you don't need them, and that's great. But if you ever need them in court, it is so important that we have documentation. So gathering documents as early as possible is really a wonderful thing to do. And then I would also say that I would guarantee you that there are programs either in your school or in your community that most people do not know about. Like, for example, the San Andreas Regional Center, which is California. Most people do not know that they service folks with uh, mental health needs and special needs. And they're, they have money, they have resources, they have time, <laughs> and but they don't have enough folks because people don't know. So I would say be an advocate for your loved one and find out what is available in your school, in your church, in your temple, wherever you worship. Find out what's available um, in your community that is intervention before you ever get to me. My goal is that folks never get to me. Mm, that's amazing. Yeah. So, and that's that's once again that community focus. And there are systems, a few, not enough, but there are a few systems that are in place. And as you say, churches and and community centers and just the whole community focus. It is people are much more aware of that. Yeah, that's fantastic tip. Anything else, Judge Brown? 
Yes, I would say if you have a local council person or assembly person, start engaging them and talking to them about what your needs are. They're elected to serve you. So start talking to them about addressing these mental health concerns and needs. And we have a day, just one day, where our vice mayor has a day for mental health to come out and discuss it and tell him what the issues are. And so that's what they're put in place to do. They're elected to serve you. So contact them by letter, by email, go to town halls and let them know what your concerns are because they're working for us. They should be working for us. So, So advocate get out there and advocate. And that's so what you're really encouraging is from a grassroots level, take control. Don't just sit back and let the system, because the system's not working. Yes. So we, as a community, as individuals, we need to, we need to advocate as well. We need to tell the system what we want. Absolutely. For humanity. Laurie? Yes, I think there are two key takeaways that that can help people from this conversation. One is sort of internal and the other one is external. But the internal one is if you if you've been given a mental health diagnosis or you have a family member who's been given a diagnosis is to understand what that means. Understand Listen to some of Dr. Leaf's podcasts and uh, read mm. some of her books that explain the history of the diagnostic manual, because what you will learn is a diagnosis is it's sort of a fiction. <laughs> it's a fiction that the mental health community has created, and, and it really is helping insurance companies mm-hmm. justify paying for the psychotropic medications. Mm -hmm. I have cross-examined psychiatric witnesses in probably close to 200 cases this year alone. And I routinely ask them if there's any distinction from a treatment perspective between a cluster of symptoms and a diagnosis. And every time, 100% of the time, those witnesses, those expert witnesses have testified, there is no distinction. Hmm. So even though at law, the first thing you have to prove in an involuntary treatment case is that a diagnosis exists, even the experts testifying recognize that that is a fiction, that there's just a cluster of symptoms. And so that's the first tip is if you've been given a diagnosis, recognize that that is not a label. You don't, you don't own it. It is not part of your identity. It's simply a definition that the system uses to create services. It's not for you. <laughs> that's, that's good. That's good. That's really good. Yeah. That's really good. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an overarching construct as opposed to a description. Yes. Because it doesn't, actually, it doesn't actually describe anything. It doesn't tell your story. Yes. And, and the symptoms could change over time. Very often I hear testimony that there's a cluster of symptoms and they're not sure which diagnosis to give because they overlap between the diagnosis is just a construct. So, you know, don't accept that as part of your identity or your family member's identity. Yeah. The the second tip or or constructive, you know, information I think that comes out of this very similar, my advice is very similar to Judge Brown's. She said contact your council members. I would add to that that if your county does not have a mental health court, if, if there is no mental health court, please write a letter 
to the chief judge, and you can find this on your county website, mm-hmm. write a letter to your chief judge explaining that you ha- you are an advocate who wants to see a mental health court. There is usually a weekly or a monthly bench meeting where they address concerns from the public. Mm-hmm. They're not always open to the public, but when you send a letter to the chief judge, that'll be a good way to pique their interest. And Judge Brown, you can answer this, but I think in in 99% of cases, if you provide your name and your contact information, you're going to hear back. You're going to hear back because we serve you. Yes. We serve the community. Yeah. And that's incredible. And when you say mental health courts, are you talking about the diversion courts specifically or? Yes. Well, yeah. In addition to diversion court, there is actually, well, for what where my county, we have actually mental health court where we, and we also have dual diagnosis court. So some people may have symptoms or diagnoses, but they also may medicate with street drugs like methamphetamine or cocaine or something like that. So we have, so we try to address uh, the dual diagnoses as well. So we have both of those diversion as well as um, just mental health where we try to offer extra support. Okay. So how does that, uh, I'm just asking these questions so that people fully understand. How does that, how does that help person in the community who's battling with mental health? How, how is appealing to your county and sending a letter to the chief judge to get a mental health court? How is it going to help? I know it's going to help, but if you wouldn't mind explaining how. Lori, do you want it's it? Good. you want it? Go ahead. Yeah. It's so when you have a mental health court in your county, it alleviates some of the pressure from the dockets that the judges, judges get very full dockets. And so um, it's a time saving. uh, And I I believe it's a money saving effort for the jails as well, because instead of putting people in jail where they have to provide them with mental health services, which usually, you know, Dr. Leaf just means drugs. Not yes. getting any kind of counseling or group or anything like that. No. It's very expensive for the jails to have people that are experiencing acute, acute symptoms in the jail. Right. They also um, have, have to be housed have, separately. They have to be housed separately. They have to have yeah. special staff members that are trained. Mm-hmm. So it's expensive for them. So you're alleviating the jail expense. You're alleviating the pressure of the judicial docket by creating this special mental health court. Yes, it has its own personnel and whatnot, but it's also usually done with existing personnel on a special day, for example. So mm-hmm. the, the way they're structured is meant to save the court's time and energy in the jail system, time and energy and money, but also what it creates for the community is people who are experiencing symptoms and they, this actually, so this, this actually happened. One of my clients showed up in a retail, in a store in the mall, and they believed that they were receiving interference from some unknown place and that Mm -hmm. the only way to stop the interference was to put a bra on their head. Mm -hmm. Okay. Completely, complete psychosis. They went into a store and grabbed a bra and put it on their head and walked out. Mm -hmm. Well, the shop owner said that's stealing. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Because they don't understand. Like this person shoplifted. So they called security. Security called the police. They ended up in the misdemeanor system. The misdemeanor system recognized this person was mentally ill and was able to divert them to the mental health court. Right. So that's an example of the kind of cases we're talking about. Okay. And in if you if you go back sixty years, 
we would find that that kind of person would have been um, lovingly supported through, okay, this person, they would have immediately assumed, okay, this person's having a bit of a breakdown and how can we help them? So there was such a community focus prior to 60 years ago and now there isn't. Now it's, you do something crazy, well, let's like, you know, lock you up or let's drug you and make you even more crazy. You know, so it's just such a shift in philosophy that's occurred and that's something have you seen that? Have you seen that in your professions? Because you've both been practicing quite a while. Have you seen a shift in the how people see mental health in your careers? I, I have, but I have seen it go the wrong way, the opposite way. Yeah. And it's, yeah. So I started in like 96, 97 and, and we just, we're doing more, crimi- we're criminalizing the, the, like you said, criminalizing emotions and behavior so much more. Exactly. Whereas prior to 60 years ago, I saw that in the 80s when I started practicing as well, that we would, as soon as someone had some kind of an emotional or focus issue, it was never seen as a mental illness that needs drugging or locking up. It was seen as, oh, this person actually needs help. How can the community pull together? How can we help the family? How can we get support? How can the community. Right. And that's the narrative that we need to bring back. So I assume when you talk about the education, that's the sort of education we yeah. need to mm-hmm. bring back. And, I'm, and I don't know if you're both familiar with the Soteria project that happened, that um, took place a few years ago. Do you know about that? I do not. That was where they basically work with patients that had been diagnosed with schizophrenia, but they put them into environments where it was very, very supportive. It wasn't drug focused. It was community focused. It was listening, supportive. Let's help you through this crisis. And it was incredibly successful. So successful that they didn't need drugs, that it was shut down because it didn't make money. And um, it's, yeah, so it's basically the system that we always used to use prior to 60 years ago and that we need to reintroduce. What what I want to do also ask you both is something about the, if I look in the medical profession, one physician a day is committing suicide. And Laurie, as you know, with vets, we, we're seeing up to 20 a day committing suicide. And the physicians that I work with and talk to, they don't want to say anything about, uh, they don't want to, they don't want to say that they're battling with their emotional health because they get labeled and it'll affect them practicing. So uh, can you both address the fact that once you have the label, how that affects, for example, your insurance policies or potential custody if it applies in your life that kind of thing what is the what is the down effect on having a mental health diagnosis and label in your records it's i can start with with from what i see number one i think you're correct if you are going through family court or anything like that it is considered a ding against you it is considered a negative thing so if you're trying to get uh, custody of your children or if you're being sued in court people always want to bring it up when it has absolutely nothing to do you know with your business necessarily but people are always digging for that information and it's used as a ding against you in any kind of criminal prison any not even criminal but any kind of legal proceeding I would imagine your insurance might be affected if if that is revealed right and then there's the whole stigma that it's attached so there's the whole process of destigmatizing but it's actually increasing the stigma and that's what the research has been showing is that the le- it's almost like if you legally say that someone is has men- a mental health diagnosis it's kind of this legal thing that you've now got attached to you and it affects everything job applications everything absolutely I was going to say everything. Yes. Laurie, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I've actually heard a story about this recently. A friend of mine who um, spent some time in the Marine Corps um, after he got out as a as a routine part of the military examination. You know, they're very keen on identifying PTS or PTSD. And um, he was having trouble sleeping. 
<laughs> now, he wasn't having trouble sleeping because of nightmares, which is one of the things they look for for PTSD. Um, he was just having trouble sleeping his sleep cycle, or maybe it was something he was eating or his environment or his schedule, who knows. And they prescribed to him a medication for sleeping that is commonly used for people with psychiatric illness. Okay. And so this is a military doctor. And so I don't know if it's one of those situations where they say, okay, everybody having trouble with sleep, raise your hands and here's your pill. Like, I don't know the numbers that they're dealing with. But what happened was he took that, it helped him sleep, he quit taking it. Well, now he has been out of the Marine Corps for some time, and he is interested in becoming an airline pilot. Well, right now, He's unable to become an airline pilot because the FAA can see this psychiatric medication mm-hmm. in his history and he's having to petition them. Wow. There's a classic example. There's another story of a young guy when he was um, when he was a child, eight, nine-year-old, and he battled a bit at school, got the label. They put him on a short period of, of Ritalin. His parents took him off because they saw the negative effect and they didn't think about it again. And this young guy grew up finished school and applied to get into the into the police force and they 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 wouldn't let him do sort of do much they wanted to just put him on a sort of office job and they wouldn't let him do handle guns or do any kind of because of that history he also had to petition you know so it's just like you go to a psychiatrist and you tell them your what you go what you're going through it goes it gets recorded and i don't think people are aware of that they they're not aware of i don't know if you want to speak to that a little bit more well this is where changing our minds about the difference between symptoms and diagnosis is important because I think we could say everyone in their lives experiences some of the symptoms that would be in the category of, you know, uh, oh, that's one of the symptoms for, you know, oh, inability to sleep. That's one of the symptoms for PTSD. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, everyone's experienced some symptomology in their lives because our bodies respond to stress. Our bodies respond to our thought life and our choices. And we have the ability Dr. Leaf teaches all of these different methods where mm-hmm. we're, our, our, our minds, we can use our minds to heal our brains. Um, and so uh, that is still a foreign concept. So bringing education to the foreground, super important. Right. If we can break this symptoms versus diagnosis issue um, at some of these upper levels we were talking about, if we can get some advocates who are passionate about that issue, um, I think we can. I'm thinking big. I'm not afraid to think really yes, big. Yes, do it. it. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you. Um, I'm I, with you. <laughs> I think there's more than just the three of us out there. The issue is maybe um, rallying all of us around this cause and figuring out, you know, what we can collectively do to help change hearts and minds on this issue. Absolutely. It's, and it's so relevant because people are, you know, there's more than a million survivor sites. I don't know if you're aware of that, of people that have gone through the system and ha- it's wrecked their lives. And there's just the same story over and over. They're waiting for, they spoke to the doctor about some minor thing, not minor, sorry, they've gone through some grief or some trauma and they don't, instead of, you know, instead of being allowed to process, it's immediately labeled and diagnosed and treated. And then the medications create this whole new change in the brain. And now we've got not a, not the, only the issue that you dealt, you were dealing with the grief or the trauma, but you have the changes in the brain that then manifest with all these other symptoms. So we, this is what we've seen 
happen in the last 60 years. And it's definitely time for a new narrative. And I think people are, you know, as you say, Laurie, people are rallying around. There is a, there is a, an awareness. And I think what, what part of the education, and I don't know how you feel about this, both of you, and if you'd like to comment, but part of the education is that when it comes to the DSM and the ICD and diagnosis, the reliability and the validity is known to not exist. It doesn't exist for the, between psychiatrists, between doctors and psychologists and licensed counsel, professional counselors, the validity and reliability of diagnosis is completely and non-existent, um, which means that you can go to two different, five different people and get five different diagnoses on the same day and um, five different medications and off-label use and, you know, that, that kind of stuff. And, and that's part of the education. I don't know if you'd, I've thrown that out there. I don't know if you'd both like to comment and maybe link it back to the legal system. Or Oh, I was going to say, you know, I can sit here and tell you that you know, we can have an argument about this and we'll put two different experts on and cross-examine them and we'll get two completely, even even different diagnoses of the same symptoms. Yes. So, I mean, it's true. So, you you know, you're, you're in court and as the judge, I'm supposed to be the decision maker and I've gotten two antithetical, two completely divergent diagnoses or opinions about the same information about the same person. And I'm not a mental health care professional, right? I'm relying on the so-called professionals and they can't agree. Mm -mm. And they never have. And there's, and that's statistically shown, it's researched, it's science. It's actually been shown that they don't agree and they agree that they don't agree. <laughs> right. So it's... So you've actually been in this, wow. Absolutely. And it makes it very tough to, to make decisions about people's lives when this is the information that you have. So, Lori, did you want to comment on that? Yes, I've actually, <laughs> I had a client who was experiencing a symptom. Um, she was catatonic um, and there was not a diagnosis um, that was on the uh, DSM you know, it was just the symptom of catatonia. And I actually had a judge say, oh, a diagnosis is not required for us to have a finding of involuntary hospitalization. <laughs> and I was so shocked by that. I had her like repeated on the record three times because all we had was this one symptom. Um, and she'd been like she was one of these super fasters. She'd like fasted for an extended period of time. And, you know, these cases come up within 24 to 48 hours. You don't have time to go out like in a big criminal case and get an right. expert who's going to come and testify that that's a natural consequence of extended fasting. Right. Um, and so, and so, yes, I think in a perfect world, we would have this recognition that people can come in early intervention. They don't necessarily have to get drugs. They might benefit from some group or individual counseling that helps them correct the issue. Then we don't have to have that stigma attach to them in an involuntary proceeding or something else if we're doing that early intervention. And then you don't have to worry about, you know, the FAA or uh, employer or, you know, whatever's coming for you down the line where you have the stigma attached. And so the early intervention is a key, key it piece is. to changing. Mm -hmm. It is. Can I mention one more thing? Because I want, I want people to think about from a judge's point of view, and we're talking about involuntary or criminal proceedings. If a judge believes that a person is violent or can be violent or has been violent, we are thinking about the community as well. So that's why there needs to be resources where I can put someone in a place where if they're going yes. through crisis, they can get through the crisis and then we can, then yes. we can revisit the issue. Because the 
oftentimes the only choice I have is jail. And so if it's jail or putting you out on the street and you hurt someone, I'm going to put you in jail for a bit because my my concern is the safety of the community. So as a judge, I have different a different perspective. So I need more resources. I need crisis centers so that I can put people in so that they can get through the crisis and get and get some treatment and come back to me so that we can discuss the issue once the crisis has subsided. So that's why we need more money, because the judges need more resources. Our hands are somewhat tied when we're talking about involuntary commitment or jail when when we don't have any other resources. Wow, what an incredible point that you've raised. Uh, I, w- I wanted to just mention in relation to that, and I know, Laurie, maybe, did you want to come in first? Because I wanted to make a, a comment, but Laurie, I wanted to ask, do you want, do you want to come in first? Yes, and so this is consistent with what I've said, is we can't just keep cycling people through the system. We have right. to start healing them because we're using up all of our money and resources on, you know, yes, on all these services there when we could be using them in early intervention and alleviating and and much less money um, and alleviating them even getting to your courtroom and needing that intervention. Right. So that's brilliant. So both of you, I want to bounce this off you because one of the things that I have proposed because I'm on the one of the committees for mental health, the mental health Washington in Washington, and one of the things I've proposed, which is no, there's no money involved, is to get these kind of support systems going inside churches because the philosophy of churches are to support community, to help, to you know, to really reach out and help and help and love others. And I, I propose that you know, you've got so many churches and you've got so many volunteers who want to help in the churches. And if we educate, and it doesn't, you don't have to have a PhD or be a doctor. In fact, I think it's better not to be. The only qualification you have need to help people is to love others. And a lot of the time what is needed, and this is what the research, funnily enough, up until 60 years ago, well, it still currently shows it, but there was a massive body of research for about 150 years showing that the best way to help someone in crisis, and so logical, is to love them. It's to listen to them. It's to provide a safe place to that, that a student who's at university who's just battling with all the pressure or someone at work who's battling with the pressure or someone who's gone through tremendous grief and they've also got to still now support a family. A mom came and spoke to me the other night at one of the conferences I was doing that she's got four children and young baby children and her husband's just had an affair and he's just left her. I mean, this woman is is broken and they're trying to medicate her. Could she not go to the church and get, say, listen, I need help with my kids. I need help with someone to help me look after them, to make meals, to just help me when I'm crying, trying to manage the situation with my husband. And, you know, otherwise she's going to land up breaking, cracking. Those kids are going to land up in their foster care system. And we know what all of that spells out. You know, so instead of a whole family landing up in on medication and potentially, the, you know, the down effect is, is tragic. Whereas if we could at that say, yeah, go to the, go to your local church that they're going to sit and listen to. You. They're going to support you. You know, this is something that we could mobilize. And what I'm trying to, one of the goals that I have with our, uh, the, the, the mental health care summits and with involving you two and the team that, of doctors that we have is to try and get this kind of initiative going. Okay. So I said a lot there. Can you two comment on that and see is that, is that even something that you would think is a viable and does it meet the kind of need that you're talking about? Um, I think it can to a certain to a certain extent. So churches are supposed to be a place where they serve the community, and we do have resource places in our churches uh, here in California, uh, re, you know, re- resources. But when we're talking about care overnight, I think there's going to have to be some standards about you know who can be there, 
um, who can who can uh, supervise that type of thing. I think in general, yes, but if we're talking an overnight facility, there's going to have to be some regulation to it, I think. So we need two things. We need your crisis management overnight or a couple of nights where they're not going to be stigmatized, but when they're having that severe psychotic break or they're dangerous to themselves or the community, that they can be put into a system without being criminalized or labeled or stuck in a, you know, have that whole stigma that we've just been discussing. So we need that. And then we need this more, the more community support. We need both. We need both. We do. Because when people are in crisis, we put them in jail or involuntary uh, confinement and that just they're isolated, they're further traumatized and we extend the we extend the crisis. Right. So we're needing that, that intermeasure as well. And it may be up to 48 hours, even 72 hours, but it's not that they're a criminal. They're forced in. It's a place of protecting. Uh, but like yeah, something in the interim. In the interim. So we need the interim and then we need the ongoing support, which is more preventative. So the churches and places are, or community centers, or it doesn't have to be churches, but can be any kind of religious organization or community place. But we need both. We need the crisis and we need the... Laurie, did, did you want to comment? Yeah, I think, Dr. Leaf, you know that the part of the work that I do is helping churches with their communication work. And in that, I do see that that churches, much like community centers, operate as a funnel or a point of first contact. Um, because I think, you know, it's it's at least in our culture to go when we need help, go to a church. <laughs> right. Um, Right. Uh, so we have people will show up at a church and say, you know, my car's broken down. I ran out of gas and maybe they'll get a, you know, five dollar gas card from the church mm-hmm. or some, those kinds like little things. But I do see that pastoral staff often feel ill equipped to deal with serious mental issues. They 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 are used to counseling people in marriage crisis and counseling people you know, with drug addictions or, you know, things like that. But the seriously mentally ill people who come in with some kind of delusion or psychosis, they're a little bit alarmed by that. And so I think if what you propose is to be successful, I think there's a training and understanding that Mm -hmm. that pastors can learn about people who are not as emotionally healthy as the average person in their congregation. (laughs) Um, and who are coming in, you know, from a very different community with maybe zero support, as Judge Brown pointed out. So, for example, Vancouver Church, where I am in Washington State, has done a really good job because we've created a security team. But the security team is aware of and familiar with some of the regular personalities that might wander in on a Sunday morning. And they're able to provide services and say hi and call them by name and look Mm -hmm. them in the eye and things that are not threatening that are creating a positive response. And so I think just a little bit of education will go a long way Mm -hmm. to making your proposal successful. Yeah, that's great. I agree with you. And there's been quite a few innovative churches that have um, actually called me in where I've done training for the staff because it is, they're very frightened. And, and, and you know, fear is the thing that's driving. People in the, over the last 60 years have been made to fear mental illness as though it's a cancer. And that's why at the end of the day, what we need is a new narrative that this is not an illness. This is a very serious thing. People go through emotional crisis, depression. These are very real, but they're not illnesses. They are part of battling with the issues of life. Life and it affects humanity. So I think as we change the narrative, we also change the fear because the fear is is what's that people are being told if you don't take give the drugs or you don't do this, your 
you know, that's bad. And I, I, I state a classic case of a lady who's in her um, 60s and she's been diagnosed and given the label of schizophrenia and she's on so many drugs that she, in between the drugs, she is normal, but um, as they as they kick in, she gets you know she gets she's having all the side effects, and so she keeps getting put in and out of hospital. And she's appealed to her friend, who's a pastor of a church, saying, "Please stop my family putting me back into the hospital. It's traumatic. It is so scary. I'm frightened, and you know I'm seen as a crazy person, and I'm not. And that kind of uh, the church doesn't know what to do with that, that sort of situation. And it's just and and what the son. I think the point that I really want to make is that the son has been told by the psychiatrist that your mother has to have this medication she'll die without it but she's dying with it and that's the education that's required it's transformed her and she's panic you know she's scared of the mental health care system it's wiping she says it's killing her and um you know that's the story that i hear so often and i think laurie you've heard a lot of those stories you know so it's, it's kind of as part of one of the things i wanted to do and then, and then i know that it's the goal of of the two of you as well is to try and change this narrative that we we look at things differently and take this fear away i don't know if you want to comment on that I just think finding the heroes is important. People see, people can see the heroes. So people who have had some symptoms, even some very serious symptoms in their past that are now considered successful, contributing members of society, you know, telling their stories and showing people that this exists and this is a possibility is a, is a powerful opportunity. Oh, that's so true. And there's so many stories out there. So yeah, that's really good. Yeah. And I think all of us could be helpful by sharing our stories. We've all suffered symptoms at one time or another. And when people know that and they know that you're a true human, even if you sit on the bench, sometimes you've suffered symptoms, you've been depressed or sad or whatever it is. It helps people to to share theirs and helps to change. Yeah. Oh, I so agree. So the last thing that I, I, just before we close off, I just wanted to ask you um, before we wrap up, do you have any other tips or suggestions for those listening? doesn't have to be related to the legal system, just anything you feel that needs to be said or shared. I mean, this is obviously an ongoing conversation. And for those of you listening, we are going to have Judge Brown and Laurie um, speaking at my annual conference this year in Dallas, Texas. And if you want to find out more, go to drleafconference.com. And we, um, so, but before we end off, Anything you'd like to say, maybe something that's been on your heart lately or profoundly impacted you recently, anything you'd like to say. Lori, do you want to go? <laughs> I think the last time that um, you and I spoke, Dr. Leaf, a couple of weeks ago, we were discussing the fact that when we are able to stop and look people in the eye and spend time with them and show love to them, that it's powerful no matter what's happening. You don't know what situation someone else is in. And I think on a personal level, we can just recognize the situation a person's in and take a moment. You don't have to invest your whole life in, in it. <laughs> but the second thing is that, and, and this is along the lines of the story I shared at your conference last year with my client, David, you don't have to have a PhD. You don't have to be a lawyer or a judge, or a neuroscientist. You don't have to have an advanced degree. The way that I learned about this brain science was through the first 20 minutes of a Dr. Leaf YouTube video. <laughs> and I relayed that to a client who was healed and out of the hospital in two days. So I know the power of simple concepts, like a thought is a real thing, it takes up real estate in your brain, and your brain does not control 
your body and your mind. Your mind controls your brain and your body. So simple concepts like that, that I can even explain to someone who's in a serious, a psychotic condition, simple concepts of love versus fear. You don't have to be an expert to be able to do that. And these materials are equipping every person with ears. And that's powerful. It's awesome. It's wonderful. I have two quick things. Two quick things. One 21 day detox app is my favorite thing that has <laughs> changed my life. I really, really love that. And I'm going to just, Lori, what you said is, is, awesome. And Dr. Leaf, you have presented this. And so what I think when I'm sitting on the bench is I am presiding over my thoughts and my Mm. feelings. So that's what I always come to. I am presiding over myself. It is not my nothing. My emotions are not in control. My thoughts are not in control. I preside here. And so that is the thought that is constantly running through my head when I feel upset or things are happening. I remember that I control this. I preside here. And so that's the thought that is constantly running. And I make sure that even, you know, the people that I see every day, I have to tell you, I see the worst of humanity on a daily basis. But I constantly remind myself that everyone who comes before me is a child of God. Mm. And so I don't judge people. I do have to judge behavior and make decisions, but I don't judge people because they are God's children. And so when I remember that even the worst behavior that comes before me, this is someone created in God's image. It helps me to be a better judge and to uh, show humanity and empathy for everyone who comes before me. It's a challenge, but 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 it's so important that we treat each other well every day. Oh, Wow, you've both just said such, both of you have just said the most fantastically profound, beautiful things. I, I've loved this beginning discussion. I believe there's going to be so many more discussions and I know that I've learned so much in this podcast and I want to thank you both for your um, your incredible attitude and your dedication and just the way you've both wrapped up now is profound. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to be on this podcast, to be involved with me, to try and help change the system. I just am very, very grateful and very honored. Oh, it's an honor. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's been wonderful. Well, Laurie and Judge Brown will both be at my mental health summit at the end of this year in Dallas, Texas. We will con- we will continue for sure this vital conversation on how to fix the mental health legal system. So if you'd like to attend, go to the drleafconference.com. Thank you again both so much. This is the first of many discussions. Thank you. Thank you both. If you are interested in learning more about mental health solutions and how to help yourself and others, I want to invite you to my 2019 Mental Health Solutions Summit in Dallas, Texas, December 6 and 7. This conference is perfect for parents looking for tips and techniques to help their children, employers and managers looking for solutions to employee burnout and stress, educators looking for information on how to help students manage anxiety, life coaches looking for more practical and applicable mental health care resources for their clients, medical professionals looking to increase their knowledge of mental health and how to incorporate techniques into their work, and so much more. This conference is focused on providing practical, easily applicable and accessible and scalable solutions to mental health-related issues. I highly recommend getting a group together and getting your tickets now before we are sold out. We will also be offering CME and CEU credits. For more information, go to drleafconference.com. The link will also be in the show notes.
I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leith. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf.